I'm Alexia Russell and welcome to the Details Long Read. Today we have something a bit different for you. For months, RNZ investigative reporter Anusha Bradley's been looking into the Jehovah's Witness Church in Aotearoa. Her investigation includes an examination of the practice of shunning people from the religion and from the community. What you're about to hear is the story of two people who grew up as Jehovah's Witnesses and what happened to them when they left. Before we begin, a warning. The story discusses severe mental distress, depression and suicide. When I was little, I, I felt like I missed out on a lot. I feel like I, I missed out on unconditional love from my family members my parents especially. I remember as a kid just feeling anxious and lonely for most of my childhood. It was definitely always overshadowed by this sense of impending doom. As third generation Jehovah's Witnesses, Cousins Cassie Dean and Brad Miller didn't celebrate birthdays or Christmas. Of course, like not having birthdays and Christmas and coming back to school after the holidays, like, oh, what'd you get for Christmas? And I'd always just make things up, you know, oh, I got this or I got that, just to feel somewhat normal. They weren't allowed to play sports or even encouraged to finish high school. When you're in the witnesses, you're thinking, oh, the world's going to end and like any day now, it's just around the corner, it's coming. So. You think, why would I invest in my future? I'm not going to have one. So the events unfolding around us are making clearer than ever that we're living in the final part of the last days, undoubtedly the final part of the final part of the last days, shortly before the last day of the last days. I remember my parents saying they didn't think they'd get to high school and then they said they didn't think I'd get to high school. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe only those living in what they call the truth will survive this Armageddon. And I'm sure you, like me, rejoice in the hope. You rejoice to think about the blessings that will come right after the Great Tribulation and Armageddon. The message is hammered home in magazines and videos like these, broadcast from the religion's headquarters in New York. For Cassie, it was a childhood lived in fear. You're in constant fear that Armageddon's going to come and you're not good enough to go through into paradise. I mean, even now, it's kind of silly, but with thunder and lightning and all these storms and climate change happening, you still question, you're like, okay, is Armageddon coming? Is it on its way? Because it's so entrenched into your mind that it is going to happen that you just... Mm scared on a daily basis. I suffer from anxiety because I just, I'm in constant fear of everything around me that's something, like I'm doing something wrong. But the price of leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses is also high. The shunning process is the hardest, one of the hardest things that I have ever gone through, losing my entire family. 
and I think people need to know about that. There are 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses globally, including 20,000 in New Zealand. But apart from doorstep preaching and refusal of blood transfusions, what do we really know about this religion? I'm Anusha Bradley, and in this special episode of The Detail, two former Jehovah's Witnesses lift the lid on what they believe is a secretive and controlling organisation with harmful practices, sharing their experiences growing up in the church and the consequences they still face years after leaving. My name's Cassie or Cassandra Dean. I'm 27. I grew up in Te Aumaru. Um, I was born into uh, the religion um, and obviously Brad's my cousin. We grew up in a, a semi-tight-knit family. You know, I we first met Cassie and Brad in mid-March in Hamilton. Summer's finally arrived, but it's a sweltering 38 degrees outside, so we're sheltering under the aircon in Cassie's living room. It, it, my focus was never making friends at school. I didn't have friends. We talk for hours about their life growing up in the church. You do the basics and your focus is preaching. And, and what happens when you decide to leave? There were many a conversation about Cassie being, the, you know, the devil child of the family, the black sheep. Like, um, I remember a couple of conversations between um, our parents about you having mental health issues. Brad and Cassie have both since left the church, but want to share their experiences about growing up as a Jehovah's Witness and shed light on what they believe are some of its most harmful practices, including how the church treats women, deals with suspected child abuse, and its practice of shunning. Cassie left home aged 17, she eventually formally disassociated herself from the Jehovah's Witness Church, which is a bit like sending a formal letter of resignation. She's not seen or heard from her parents in more than six years. They have written me, written to me twice before we cut all communication, and it was a letter saying that they couldn't associate with me anymore because of the choices that I had made. Um, we had a relationship, again, very briefly, um, but after a assembly... Like a convention that they have, um, they sent me another letter saying that they couldn't talk to me again. So that was so hard to hear via letter that your parents don't want to talk to you ever again. There are two ways a Jehovah's Witness can leave the church. They're either disfellowshipped, which means they're excommunicated and cast out, usually as punishment for breaking a rule, or they leave by disassociation, like Cassie did. Either way... When someone leaves, current members are no longer allowed to associate with them, and as you've heard, even close family members. Sonia Erickson has been disfellowshipped. It crushed my whole family. And videos like these instruct members how to shun. Later, my father explained to me that I couldn't remain in the home because I refused to change my lifestyle. He told me I was having a negative effect on my younger brother and sister. The practice of shunning is criticised by former members and some experts as cruel, harmful and even dangerous. More on this later. For the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's a necessary step 
consistent with their Bible's requirement to remove unrepentant sinners from their midst. The church refers to it as a loving provision. Norway, following concerns about the impact Shining has on the rights of children, last year stripped the church of its registration as a religion, meaning it can no longer claim government grants, a decision the church is now disputing in court. The only education men are allowed or encouraged to get is something like a trade that they'll need in the new world. Brad, Um, who's now 24, left the religion two years ago. He'd been disfellowshipped before, as a 20-year-old for having sex outside marriage. But he was let back in after marrying his girlfriend. It isn't long into the marriage that he starts questioning some of the church's teachings. I'm a history nerd. So I started you know, listening to podcasts and watching videos and things about different historical sites. And I found one in Turkey that was 12,000 years old. And that didn't make sense because the Bible says we're only 6,000 years old. You know? And that was that, I remember that very clearly being the first domino because I couldn't disprove it. It was very clear. Um, and then I just started basically going down that rabbit hole. If they're wrong about this, what else are they wrong about? He discovers an online support group of former Jehovah's Witnesses on Reddit and reads story after story about how the church deals with child abuse. He also discovers the findings of the 2015 Australian Royal Commission of Inquiry into Institutional Abuse in regards to the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Royal Commission heard that of the 1,006 alleged abusers identified to the Jehovah's Witnesses since 1950, not one single person had been reported to police. Brad decides it's time to leave. Yeah, I was angry. That was my first emotion, was um, was anger, because that, exactly that. I realised I've been lied to from birth and I've wasted 24 years. I, was, I, could, I dropped out of school in year 10 because I went pioneering because that was what you do. And then I realised now I don't have NCA. I haven't been to uni, I've got no degree, I can't do anything. And I know I'm leaving at this point. <laughs> what the hell am I going to do? Nearly two years on, Brad is still striving to forge a new life outside the church, And with little to no education, it's a challenge to find anything more than entry-level jobs. He admits leaving his religion and family behind and starting over again is tough. At this point, he's still officially a Jehovah's Witness. He hasn't been disfellowshipped and he hasn't disassociated himself. He just left. Brad says because he's still officially a member, his parents don't have to shun him, but they choose to anyway. A week later, Brad sends me a voice memo with some surprising news. He's decided to officially disassociate himself from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's clear the outcome of his decision is weighing on him heavily. It's not a great feeling. Um, It's probably not going to change much from my situation because I'm being shunned already anyway. Um, But this will make that permanent. Uh, Even if I... even if I wanted to go back um, or talk to my family again, my parents, any of my friends, um, after today, that will become impossible. I mean, that's on, impossible on their side. I mean, they, if they wanted to, they could talk to me anytime they want, but they've chosen not to. They've chosen a cult over their son, in my parents' case. Uh, part of that I can understand because I know what it's like to be in, but... Yeah, it hurts. Um, it's it's not like I did anything. <laughs> I, I just don't, didn't believe anymore. That was it. That's all it took. He sends off the email the next day. 
It's difficult for Brad and Cassie to talk about their former lives and the impact of leaving that former life. The grief is still raw, often palpable, and they've both suffered from anxiety and depression as they adjust to this new world and life without their families. Yet even though this hurts, they want people to know what it's like to be shunned, which they consider to be one of the church's most harmful practices. Once, once you leave the organisation, especially if you're disfellowshipped or dissociated, you lose your entire support group. Um, for Cassie and myself, we were raised in the religion, so it was our, all our family, all our friends, in my case my job as well. Um, everything was centred around witness life. I can't imagine what it's like to just leave everything you've known behind. What was that like? Terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. Um, and so lonely, like... Yeah, when you like I said, when you're raised a witness, you're allowed to have friends outside of witnesses. Um, you're not allowed to do anything social um, that's not witness related. And then, yeah, for the vast majority of our family were all witnesses too. So it kind of felt like everyone that I'd known all died on the same day. Basically, that was kind of the just like a really deep grief and abandonment and things like that. Um, I was fortunate enough that for a couple of months after I left, because I wasn't officially disfellowshipped, um, my parents did talk to me for a while, and like I was able to stay with them for a couple of weeks until I got a house, um, and then I stayed, stayed with Cassie as well. Um, yeah, and then just kind of this lingering loneliness for for a long time until you know. It's, I'm rebuilding my life now and it's getting a lot easier every day and starting to make some friends and Cassie and um, Josh have been absolutely wonderful. Um, but still there, you know. Like, you know, something good happens or even something bad happens and the people you normally go to call like, oh, man, I want to tell mum or dad about this or something like that. Oh, wait, I can't. <laughs> so, yeah, it still still stings, still hurts, but I know I'm, I'm better off out, so that helps me to come to terms with that. You lose a, a whole identity when you leave that organisation because you, you've grown up with so many ideals and this way of life and then suddenly it's all gone. And just to start again, there's no, like, square one. It's just, like, taking every single day, day at a time and trying to hope that you get it right. It's, yeah, it's very terrifying having no support system, nothing. No education, you know... Having a whole family is everything that I've ever wanted, like a hug from my mum, a hug from my dad. Like, that's what I think about every single day. Um, and I would kill for that. And to lose the opportunity to have that again is just, it is devastating. It does kill you. It eats you up inside. And if you don't kind of deal with it as like a living grief, then, yeah, it'll it'll chew you up inside. It's a technique to keep everybody under control, you know, because everybody is very afraid of it. Marlene Winnell is an American psychologist who's worked with hundreds of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as others who leave cults or what are called high-control religions. She coined the term religious trauma syndrome in the 1990s to describe the harm caused by practices such as disfellowshipping and shunning. Religious trauma syndrome is not an officially recognised psychiatric syndrome, but Dr Winnell says those who suffer from it can have symptoms similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, 
including anxiety, depression and sleep disorders. If you think about it, it's um, massively cruel because uh, we have basic instincts. You know, we want to be uh, accepted and loved by our parents, by our family. Um, That sort of love and acceptance is uh, critical to feeling okay about ourselves and safe in the world. So the idea of being rejected, I mean, just think about this in an evolutionary kind of way. You know, we are tribal people. And the idea of being isolated, the idea of being alone, kicked out of the cave, kicked out of the t- tribe, is uh, the most frightening thing. It's, it's abandonment. And so what, what's happening in a Jehovah's Witness context is they're, they're threatening death, basically, emotional death. And that, that's the very top of the list of what organically we are very afraid of, is being isolated and, and helpless. And so... Sure, holding that kind of a threat over people's heads is enormously controlling, and it keeps people in the religion. And people stay in much longer than they necessarily would if they felt more uh, more safe in venturing out on their own because of this uh, frightening thing. Sometimes people stay and um, pretend to participate because they can't tolerate the idea The Jehovah's Witnesses strongly object to any suggestion that the practice of disfellowshipping is harmful. They say there's nothing unique about having a religious process to expel those who sin unrepentantly, and even professional associations like lawyers and doctors remove people who don't abide by their standards or rules. The Jehovah's Witnesses also say expulsion is often only for a short time, and restatement is common. They say the process helps people to rebuild their relationship with God. They say an expelled person is still welcome to attend its religious services and meet with the elders for pastoral help. I'm on the road with Brad and Cassie, heading out of Hamilton towards Osorahanga and Tikoweti. I'm keen to see where Brad and Cassie grew up and the places that shaped their lives as Jehovah's Witnesses. How are you feeling, Brad? A lot of memories coming back. <laughs> Understandably, they're both a little nervous. It's the first time Brad is returning to his hometown since leaving more than two years ago. Cassie hasn't been back in years either. Oturahanga, a small farming town in rural Waikato, is probably most known for its Kiwi house. Just off the main road on the outskirts of town is the old Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. That's what they call their places of worship. Brad and Cassie's parents and grandparents helped to build this hall, but it was sold a few years ago, and strangely for Cassie and Brad, it's now a gym. And so how often would you meet here? Uh, four times a week. Yeah. I'd, maybe, I'd just come more. down whenever we're visiting family, but we used to go preach preaching here, uh, the meeting up in the mornings to go out with Nana, yeah. When we were, when Mum was pioneering, we'd be here six days a week, I think. Yeah, most 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 of the time. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Should we go inside and see if we can yes, have a look around? Definitely. Oh, the atrium is still there. The gym's owner kindly lets us take a look inside. So, like, there used to be rows and rows of chairs all along here. Um, same on the other side, and yeah, this is. Yeah, massive. So you would spend a lot of your childhood here, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was um, 
same with my congregation as well like two hours a, a night probably Tuesday Thursdays and then Sundays as well we'd spend most of our time in here yeah just listening yeah crazy <laughs> that it's like this now I remember coming in when nobody was here to practice my Bible readings because I'd get up on stage and do that during the weeks. I remember my mother teaching me to do the sound system here and then I started doing that as I grew up more and more. But yeah. Getting the wooden spoon out the back and the shame of being dragged through the, the centre of the hall right here. I remember that very vividly. Um, I remember a couple of weddings here, a couple of funerals. Oh yeah. Um, it's just it just seems like like a past life. It's it's disorientating really. Because it was such a massive part of my life and to come back here in this room strange. It's it's very, very odd. How many years has it been? Oh at least fifteen, I would say. What? Oh when did it close? Closed in 2008, but we still, like, mum and dad and me did the maintenance until it sold. Uh, yeah. So that was where the stage was. I noticed yeah. you, on the, the picture yeah. of your parents, you had, there was an inscription. What does that say? As for me and my household, we shall serve Jehovah. Oh, that was the year text, yeah. Yeah, so they would have, like, a yearly text above the stage. Um, they would have a daily text as well, but that was kind of, like, the theme for the year. It's, it seems kind of strange that my parents were married when that was the yearly text because it seems really apt as to how our lives have gone. Like, their household is serving Jehovah and, and mine isn't. Like, that's how they lived their, their whole lives, by that text. And that they were married when that was the yearly text, so, yeah. Interesting that there's a new inscription now on that wall. <laughs> Stronger than yesterday. It's also a bit apt, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. seems I'm, I'm more relate to that than I do that, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can tell Brad and Cassie are a bit overwhelmed by being back here, the place stirring up a lot of old memories. I'm just I'm realising for the first time how young I was here when I was doing what I was doing, which is crazy. So how old were you? I was here from birth till nine years old. Um, the fact that they let a five to nine year old do what I did is insane. I don't and know what, what responsibilities did you have here? Um, I looked after the sound system during the meetings, so like microphones for people giving comments, um, volume control, playing the music, things like that. Um, then I'd be on, on the stage reading from the Bible and doing things like that. And, I didn't start saying the prayers till I was in Tekawiti, but um, yeah, just stuff like that, which, is, yeah, I can't believe I did that at five years old. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. I got my um, first blood card in here as well. Like, I remember I was standing right in that doorway and I was talking to my grandfather and he's the one that approved it. The blood card Brad's talking about here is a wallet-sized card that witnesses carry on their person refusing blood. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't accept any blood products. Do you remember what you said or what, what happened then? Granddad, I want to be an unbaptised publisher were my exact words. And he said, OK, do you want to be on the school too? And I said yes, and they were both done in five minutes. I didn't realise I'd just potentially signed my life away if I'd got into an accident and needed a blood transfusion, but all it took was that question and it was done. Our next stop is the Kingdom Hall in Tikawiti, 
where Brad and Cassie spent much of their teens. It's empty today, so no chance of going in, but the place still conjures up vivid memories. Yeah, they're all, all the meanings were kind of identical, so the last like 10 years kind of just blur together because everything the same was the same thing every single week. You were trained to be a ministerial servant here, was it here? Yep, yeah, that happened. So, what, what does that job that involve? That run right there, I got my promotion. Um, basically, you handle the day to day running of everything, like all the odd jobs, so the men in charge don't have to worry about it, they can focus on their shepherding or their encouragement of um, a congregation. Mm. So, yeah, all the just running tasks of things, the organising, cleaning and running the meetings and things like that. And did you do um, door knocking in Tikawiti as well? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, we kind of split up groups and kind of tackled both towns the same day and yeah, a lot of time door knocking here as well. I remember you saying you used to really hate door knocking, it was a real, it was just a yep. horrible thing you had to do and endure. endure. Saturdays were not a good day. No. No. And then I had to start pioneering, didn't I? So it happened every day. But yeah, used to fake knock, pretend to knock on a door and hope no one answered. And pretend, like I would push the, instead of the button of the doorbell, I'd push like the plastic just below it so the doorbell wouldn't actually ring and I could pretend to push a button. Uh, yeah. From what age would you, would you do that? Um... I remember doing that, well I remember hoping I wouldn't answer the door like at around 10 because that's when I kind of started going off script and having to do it myself and not what someone had written for me, yeah. What kind of reaction would you get from people when they did open the door? Mix, it got more intense as I got older because you know nobody really yells at a kid but um, yeah the older I got the more abuse people got. Um, some people were right, really happy, some people would just say, oh no, I'm not interested, that was the most common, and then yeah, some people got really angry. And what would happen when someone got angry? Um, we got trained in like some de-escalation stuff, and you know, just kind of back away, apologise for disturbing them, and get off the property and things like that. They do uh, have a, a do not call list, um, yeah. so if households do get relatively angry then their number would be put on the do not call list um, and then that would be told to everyone who was preaching around that area on that day um, and then elders would approach that household because they had more training to do so yeah we did have one couple get threatened with a firearm at one house they went to a farmer's house and I don't know the reason but he was really upset and um he said, if you ever come back here again, I'm going to pull out my gun. And then um, another couple who hadn't heard that um, went back to the house and he did pull out his gun. So mm. No one was hurt or anything like that, but yeah, they never went back there again. But yeah, you, you, you would run into some very angry people. It's a lot to take on as a kid, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You, you learn rejection of your beliefs from a very, very young age. And ridicule. Yeah. You, you do feel very, very different from other people. Yeah, definitely. I just remember feeling really exposed, like walking down the street. Like you could see curtains move, you knew people were watching, and just, and you're always told, people are watching us, you're on display, put on a good show to, you know, promote what we're doing here, and people are judging. So, yeah, I remember feeling very exposed walking down the street with my little bag of literature, and yeah. How are you feeling, Cassie? I, uh, it's, I don't really have many memories here, um, just when I would visit, mm. yeah. I think I was kind of um, pimo by then. Mm. 
Mm. Explain PMO. Uh, physically and mentally out. It's kind of a term that Jehovah's Witnesses use. Oh well, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses use to kind of describe how they are in the religion. I guess. Yeah. It's been a big day for Brad and Cassie, so we decide to head back to Hamilton. Then, just as we're leaving, Brad spots his father parked on the side of the road. He hasn't seen him in more than two years. He tells Cassie to pull over. So we're just driving out of Osurahanga, and um, and Brad spots his dad. He spots him outside a house, and he decides to go over and have a chat. Say hi. He hasn't spoken to his parents in many months. I've stayed in the car. Cassie went with him. And it looks like they're having a chat. I know Brad was really anxious this might happen. You okay? I will be. The encounters left Brad visibly upset. That year basically blamed me for breaking up the family, considering how and broke his heart, considering uh, he, according to him, raised me on his own for the first year and a half of my life, and he put so much effort into me, and then I threw it all away, and now I've broken his, my mother's heart and the family. Oh, that's tough to hear. Um, and I said, that's not what's happened. I simply, we have a disagreement of beliefs. You raised me to make a choice, and I made it. And now uh, I'm being punished for making the choice that you told me I always could make when I was older. So your parents did tell you you could choose to believe or not? They did, and then they said, if I choose not to be with Jaiobra, I'm choosing not to be with them. That was always the condition. So, yeah. They've basically always told me that if I chose not to be with Jehovah, they were going to abandon me. In the days after their encounter, Brad's father texts him a few times, urging him to return to Jehovah. A month later, Brad decides he wants to share something deeply personal, something he's finally ready to talk about. I think deep down I always knew I've known for a very long time but I didn't openly even with myself I didn't admit it until I was out of the church for nearly a year. Brad has recently come out as bisexual something that's expressly forbidden in the religion. Pure shame, denial, disgust those were sort of the feelings that I had when ever something like that came up when I was in. Then it was essentially they're of the thinking that and kind of pray the gay away, um, as it were. Like the, you pray to God for strength to resist the urges so you don't act on anything, and then when you're in the new world, he'll fix you because there's something wrong with you. Yeah, just completely cut that part of my personality off, and then if something would come up or something, you know, for whatever it was, and it was knocking on that door, Um, the immense guilt and shame that I would feel would just absolutely crush me for days. Um, And then I'd eventually muster the strength to shut it back off again. That must have been really hard on your your mental health. 
yeah, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with the consequences of that now because I can't, I can't turn it back on. I can't. <laughs> I'm having a hard time um, figuring out who I am with this. So that's yeah. And even now um, that I'm out, like I was thinking about going on a date with someone not too long ago, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't handle the feeling I was being watched or the shame and guilt of it. I have so much empathy and respect for people that know fully and are still in and are still enduring that for whatever reason um a lot stay in for just to keep their family and things like that so i have i have so much respect for those people but yeah the the i also see in a whole nother light now how much the this group are hurting hurting the lgbt community um even though i know i really don't have a reason to be anymore it's it's yeah still I get very nervous and like anxiety right if I'm about to say say something related to it um yeah it's it gets very stressful so I just want to acknowledge that you're incredibly brave to talk about this with me why why was it so important that you wanted to talk about it I remember growing up in this group and the isolation they make you feel if you're not towing the line. And so, especially if you're thinking about leaving, you're convinced that the world is going to be a dark, scary place where you'll find nobody, no love, no one to help you, and you're leaving everything of value behind. So if someone who's in that position um, hears this and knows that they're not alone. People, we've gone through it before you, and we'll be there to help you when you come out. Um, yeah, that would have made my journey so much easier, and hopefully it does that for the next person. In a written statement, the Jehovah's Witnesses said they respect all people, regardless of race, background, or sexual orientation. The Bible shows that God disapproves of sexual activity that is not between a husband and wife, whether it is homosexual or heterosexual conduct. Homosexuals are welcome at our meetings as anyone else. However, to be baptized as and remain one of Jehovah's Witnesses, one has to personally understand, agree, and live by all of the Bible teachings. Despite what they've been through and the many challenges they still face, Brad and Cassie are finding their feet. They've found each other on the outside and have built a new family of friends and supporters around themselves. Cassie has put herself through uni and is now a regional manager with a food company. Brad is still deciding what he wants to do, but is hoping to finish his NCEA that he never completed as a teenager and is thinking about attending university next year. I'm trying to figure out who I am now because... I don't know. I, 22 years of my life living as a shell of who I am. It's it's a challenge to figure out what I really want to do and what what means something to me. And yeah, so I'm I'm getting there. I'm finding finding passions, finding uh, things I care about, and what I don't care about anymore. And I'm still young, and I have opportunities now that I didn't have before. So just, so many yeah, opportunities. Exactly. So Literally, many. the world is your oyster. So. That was a that was a huge realization as well. That was what shifted my attitude when I came out. It was one of terror to excitement. It's like, okay, yeah, I've lost everyone, but 
now I literally have the whole world I can go where I want I can do what I want and there's so many things to experience and just kind of a sense of wonder as well. So there were positives as well. I wasn't all sad. <laughs> You're no longer holding your real self back. Yeah, You can exactly. do the things that you always wanted to but felt guilty about before. Yeah. Life was just full of excitement and I always had that in the back of my head going through the things that I did that life is just amazing, that there's so much to give and there's so much for the world to offer and there's so much more than just being having this identity of like someone who's been in a cult. I don't have to let this religion define who I am. They both hope that by sharing their experiences, they can help others like them. I just want to make sure that everyone in the religion who wants to leave has their say and that there is unconditional love out there, no matter what. Um, And I want children to be safe. I want them to have a path for them to be able to leave if they want to leave and be able to have open minds and and live a, a normal childhood. That's a real thing to have a childhood and experience the things that your other peers are experiencing, Christmas, birthdays, you know, not being feeling guilty about swearing your first curse word or, you know, wanting a tattoo or drinking alcohol or, you know, there are things out there that having those experiences are so, so important and they're normal feelings. And I hope that, yeah, this helps someone give them the encouragement to leave. Even just so they know that being who they are is not a crime. You're not Mm. doing something wrong. You just, you can be yourself and that's okay. What I would love to see happen is even if, you know, just a couple of witnesses see this and they realise, hey, we're not alone, this person's gone through it too. And it's not a big scary world out there. It's, there's there are genuinely lovely people who will care about you and support you and yeah, you're not gonna. Your life is not gonna fall apart without the witnesses. Like, it's not all there is. There's there's much more out here, and so, we'd, so we'd welcome you. This documentary was made by me, Anusha Bradley with production help from Justin Gregory. The engineers were Jeremy Ansell and Mark Chesterman. The executive editor is John Hartevelt. Learn more from my investigation into the Jehovah's Witnesses online at rnz.co.nz slash something evil. There are links to resources for anyone seeking help on that page. That was a special report on shunning in the Jehovah Witness Church from RNZ investigative journalist Anusha Bradley. The details long read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with another long read. Kakita anō.